Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of September 18th, 2022 through September 24th, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're joining me live on YouTube, because we are doing this live on YouTube, I want to thank you for joining me. Make sure to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the bell icon. That way you get notified for future content. If you have any comments, questions, you want to see any kind of uh, content on the channel, then go ahead and let me know in the comments as well. And then also, if you're listening on podcasting platforms, like you heard, we are available on all the major platforms. So Spotify, uh, iTunes, whatever else there is, uh, subscribe on there as well. Make sure to leave a review. Let me know how we're doing. And same goes if you want to hear other stuff, you want to see other kind of content. The other thing too, is that in the link, uh, in the description, there's going to be a link to the show notes. So if you want to go back and look at some of the articles more, you want to look at some other articles that maybe we didn't get to, uh, I will put all the links in there as well. And that will be on my website, johngood.com. So you can check out all that information. Uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the articles here. So first article, Uber says there's no evidence that users' private information was compromised. So if you're not familiar, there's a big, uh, big thing going on with Uber for being uh, basically hacked and you know, a whole, a whole bunch of information about it. And um, basically somebody got access to their internal systems. We covered this actually last week. So if you want to go learn more about it and go check that out. And they've kind of had, you know, an interesting history as far as breaches and how they've handled it and things like that. So that's kind of what that's about. But Uber provided an update regarding the recent, secu- recent security breach, which was the one we covered last week of its internal computer systems. The company confirmed that there's no evidence that intruders had access to users' private information. Uh, so kind of the big deal with the, this recent one was that um, basically the idea that the attacker had access to their bug bounty pr- uh, program information too. So not just some of the internal systems. And it was a teenager too, just, just in case you haven't uh, remembered. But go back and check out that episode from last week and you can learn more about that. Um, the company did not disclose details about the attack. Several experts believe that it downplayed the incident and has no clear idea about the depth of the intrusion. Uh, with a lot of breaches that we're seeing these days, that tends to happen. A lot of companies are downplaying it, especially you know initially. And then it kind of, over time, starts to leak out a little bit more as far as like how or the extent of the actual attack. Uber on Thursday suffered, uh, so that's Thursday of last week, suffered cyber attack. The attackers were able to penetrate its internal network, internal documents, including vulnerability reports. And we already mentioned that. Uh, Uber notified law enforcement and started an internal investigation into the incident, a company spokesperson confirmed. So this really brings up the question of, you know, within your company, when you get hacked, how do you respond? What do you do, right? In a lot of countries and a lot of uh, locations around the world, there are requirements. So if you get hacked, or there are a certain number of customers or you know data records companies whatever that are uh, in that that are impacted by that breach that you have to do a notification right you have to notify maybe a regulatory body 
maybe law enforcement. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of requirements, right? And so understanding how to respond to that and the actions to take is crucial in your instant response plan and the process that you have to follow. Um, so, you know, I like the idea that, that a spokesperson said that this happened because that at least is a positive sign that they are aware of what they needed to do. You know, within companies in general, knowing what to do and actually doing what you should do are two different things. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's at least a positive thing, especially with like larger companies. You know, larger companies tend to have legal, counts, uh, legal counsel and other people that are kind of involved in the process and make sure that some of this stuff happens. Whereas like a smaller company, you know, that might not happen. A thousand person company, 500 person company, maybe that doesn't happen. And, you know, so that, that's kind of a difference between the two kind of companies. But we'll continue to kind of see how this plays out because this is not going away. This is not going to be a short-term thing. The uh, former um, chief security officer, uh, I believe is the title that he held. It was CISO. Um, I think it was chief security officer. Um, but he's kind of been already in hot water recently anyways, too. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting things just as far as like breaches and how those are handled and who's on the hook and all that stuff. Uh, next article, LastPass says hackers access its systems for just four days. So LastPass, another big brand that got hacked recently. LastPass has provided some more information on the security incident that was discovered earlier this year. And in an update published this week, the company says that it managed to confirm that hackers access its system for just four days. Four days can be an eternity, right? <laughs> like you can do a lot of stuff and access a lot of data in four days. The whole thing happened in August 2022, LastPass says. And once again, it hasn't found any evidence that the malicious attackers access any customer data or encrypted password vaults. So with LastPass, I mean, the whole idea is that your passwords are secure. If you don't know what a password manager or password vault is, basically it's that idea where I have one master password and then that within that vault, so once I enter that master password, uh, that unlocks the vaults or the password manager. And then it will store other passwords for other sites, other services, things like that. So I can then make those passwords really, really secure. And I don't have to just solely rely on that one password. I don't have to reuse passwords. And so that's kind of the idea with password managers. Uh, LastPass is a really popular one that exists in the market. Um, let's see here. Uh, our investigation determined that the threat actors gained access to the development environment using a developer's compromise endpoint. While the method used for the initial endpoint compromise is inconclusive, the threat actor utilized their persistent access to impersonate the developer once the developer had successfully authenticated using multi-factor authentication, LastPass explained. So kind of a session hijacking. And as for the customer data uh, remained secure during the whole time, it's because the development environment isn't in any way connected to the other environments that the company uses. I think that's a key, right? That's, a, that's an important fact. Because in your companies, when you have these separate uh, environments, you're going to have things like a development environment, a test environment, a production environment. And when you're creating things, they kind of go through these stages. And then the production environment is like your real live network where you have everything. Typically within like test environments and development environments, you're not using real customer data. If you have that linked in any way where you're using customer data, that's a huge issue. That's a no-no and you should probably fix that. But you know, with like this, they're not connected. So 
you know, there's a little bit less risk is just as far as how things are, what they had access to. And a lot of times you might have these literally physically isolated, right? And so, um, you know, that that's pretty expected. So at least they're, they're following some good practices as far as how development environments and that whole pipeline is uh, created. So that's good to see. But again, four days can be an eternity, right? Like if you have, you know, let's say you have a team of like five or maybe 10, right, attackers. Let's say five. Five is more reasonable for a, a non-nation state kind of group. But you have five people that can take turns and work in shifts over four days and just access you know, as much data as possible. So four days can be a lot, right? Uh, next article, Google, Microsoft can get your passwords via web browsers spell check. Extended spell check features in Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge web browsers transmit form data, including personally identifiable information, PII, in some cases, passwords to Google and Microsoft respectively. And I believe that's because anything you put in there, you know, can go back to them, right? But uh, while this may be a uh, known and intended feature of these web browsers, it does raise concerns about the, what happens to the data after transmission and how safe the practice might be, particularly when it comes to password fields. Both Chrome and Edge ship with basic spell checkers enabled, but features like Chrome's enhanced spell check or Microsoft Editor, when manually enabled by the user, exhibit the potential privacy risk. In cases where Chrome uh, enhanced spell check or Microsoft Edge's editor spell checker were enabled, Basically, anything entered into the form fields of these browsers was transmitted to Google and Microsoft. Furthermore, if you click on show password, the enhanced spell check even sends your password, essentially spelljacking your data, explains uh, AutoJS in a blog post. So, you know, when you're dealing with a, uh, basically a form, right? So what happens is you enter something in, how does it spell check that? Or how does it, you know, interact with a website? Well, I mean, it's got to interact with like a server or a database or something like that where it can verify whatever you're checking or whatever you're spell checking, right? And so it does make sense how that interaction works, right? Like that, that makes sense, right? I can't store, I mean, I guess I could store locally the whole database or something like that, right? That wouldn't be effective because as far as like updates and things like that, I want to access some kind of central repository, but you know, especially like the, the, the password field, right? Like, let's take that for example. So how do we indicate that some field is a password field, you know, within the web, right? Like how do we indicate that so that our web browsers are not then checking out once we hit that show password field? Um, so this is something that we're obviously not gonna, you know, solve right here, but it's an interesting kind of thing. You know, what kind of data are you ingesting in your company? Do you know what kind of data you're ingesting? Where is that line as far as privacy and, you know, as far as a company, what I can take in without then starting to be responsible for that, right? Like if somebody enters in one of these fields, their social security number, right? Like in the United States, we have these social security numbers where that's like kind of your identification, your ID as far as the government is concerned for like taxes and things like that. Um, so where does that line cross, right? If I, as a user, enter my social security number in there and then you, uh, that gets sent to you through this process, you know, are then you responsible for the proper safety of taking in social security numbers, 
right? Like that's that's a real um, that's a real issue, a real topic, right? So um, I think this will be something that kind of evolves over time, and we'll kind of get more more insight into that. I think it's really hard to you know in that kind of circumstance. I think it's really hard to kind of um, regulate that. Certainly if it's like, okay, this is your social security number field and that's the information that we're looking for, then I think that's a little bit easier to deal with. But, you know, in these free form kind of forms, it's, it's maybe a little bit harder to regulate. Uh, U.S. border forces are seizing Americans' phone data and storing it for 15 years. If a traveler's phone, tablet, or computer even gets searched, uh, ever gets searched at an airport, American border authorities could add data from their device to a massive database it can be accessed by thousands of government officials. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, leaders have admitted to lawmakers in a briefing that its officials are adding information to a database from as many as 10,000 devices per year, the Washington Post reports. Uh, further, 2,700 CBP officers can access the data, uh, database without a warrant and without having to record the purpose of their search. These details have been revealed in a letter to Senator Ron Wyden, wrote to CBP Commission... Uh, uh, t- written to CBP Commissioner Chris Magnus, where the lawmaker also said that CBP keeps any information it, it takes from people's devices for 15 years. While law enforcement agencies aren't typically required, uh, require, they do require a search warranty, uh, <laughs> a search warrant, if they want access to the contents of a phone or other, any other electronic database, border authorities are exempt from having to do the same. So if you haven't ever you know, looked up the idea of crossing the border with electronics and some of the, um, you know, concerns that exist with that going to any country, right? Like there's a lot of countries that we've seen actually do this where they, um, you know, there's always a concern that they're going to take data off of your system or force you to unlock your system to review, you know, review data, right? And so that's always been a concern. We've seen that with a lot of different countries. It's not just the U.S. Um, but, you know, obviously that's a concern. Obviously, any time that you are, uh, you're able to hook up, you know, one of these devices, like your laptop or something gets hooked up to a device that some of the border agents have or something like that, and it's able to take data, you know, all of that is a concern, right? Especially when you're going to, especially when you're going to store that information, uh, you know, at all. And then especially when you're going to store that information for 15 years, right? Like that's crazy. 15 years is a long time to retain that information. So, you know, that that's a lot of issues just kind of uh, compiled on each other. And then because, you know, at least in the United States, border agents and uh, so border agents, they typically fall like under Homeland Security, which is not you know, necessarily considered like our regular law enforcement arm, right? And so that is, you know, it, it kind of is outlined in here where they don't require a warrant to access data because typical law enforcement data, if they want to go, uh, or law enforcement, if they want to go into your, uh, your house, your, you know, your electronics, kind of those things, then they have to get a search warrant and that's signed off by like a judge and a court and, you know, this whole process, right? But if, Agents like this, you know, who are, you know, essentially, right, 
not not uh, you know not by law, but essentially they are law enforcement agents, and they can just kind of uh, peruse or browse through your data, whatever's you know captured in this database. You know that seems like a uh, an issue, right? Like kind of um, uh, a loophole, right, in the whole process. And so I think that's an issue for sure. Uh, and then also too, I mean, you know, so especially like in the U.S., there's a, diff- a distinction between you know citizens and you know people that are visiting or you know coming in from outside of the country, right? Like they're typically on a lot of this kind of, kind of stuff. There seems to be a distinction between that. And, you know, a lot of times, especially like with Americans, like Americans tend to be like, well, I have these rights and because I am a citizen and, you know, all this other stuff. So there's always, you know, much more uproar from, uh, from citizens with stuff like this, uh, especially if you're impacted a lot by it. But um, also too, then it's like, well, okay, if you're taking this data, so that's an issue, right? Like you're taking the data, you're storing it. Uh, how is that database then protected? Like who can access that database? Uh, is that database secure? Can it be hacked? What if it gets hacked? Like there's a whole lot of issues with this and stuff like this tends to kind of trickle out as far as when we start finding out about it. It's not like, oh, well, you know, we've known about this the whole time. It's like, well, we know about this. Then we find out a little bit more. Then we find out a little bit more information about this and it all be kind of, uh, kind of becomes, you know, an issue, right? So. Um, yeah, I, well, we'll have to keep watching this and see if any more information comes out with this, how it ends up, you know, kind of evolving. If this letter changes anything, I mean, we'll see. Right. Uh, let's see here. So this is a good article. Uh, FTC's con is extremely disturbed by Twitter whistleblower allegations says investigation could target CEO federal trade commission. Uh, chairwoman Lena Khan said Tuesday she was extremely disturbed by allegations made by a twi- uh, Twitter whistleblower that the company misled the FTC about the extent to which it was complying with the 2011 consent decree reached with it with the agency. Twitter entered the consent decree in 2011 after the FTC alleged that ha- uh, alleged that hackers gained administrative control of Twitter on two occasions in t- 2009, granting them access to non-public user information and tweets that consumers had designated as private. So back, back in the day before security was a big issue, right? Uh, 2009. In May, the FTC ordered Twitter to pay $150 million for violating that order and deceptively using data like cell phone numbers meant to protect account security for targeted advertising. So they're, they're basically repurposing data that you've provided to them to specifically target you, right? Uh, Peter Mudge Zatko, who's a um, respected cybersecurity expert and twi- Twitter whistleblower, told the Senate Judiciary Committee last week that the company withheld information from the FTC when it conducted interviews aimed at enforcing the law uh, order. So when you lie to the government, they're going to come after you. That's just, that's how it is, right? Uh, Khan also described the 2011 consent order as a legacy approach. And this is where it gets interesting. Legacy approach that the agency is now moving on from. She said that one remedy the FTC is using to make sure companies follow consent decrees is naming individual executives or directors of the company in the orders and holding them personally responsible for misbehavior. So, you know, with any kind of regulation and anything like that, a lot of the, 
uncertainty, especially with cybersecurity, is where does the blame lie, right? And, you know, that we're seeing that with a lot of different companies that are getting breached. It's not just this example. And, you know, with chief information security officers, chief security officers, that's kind of one of the issues that goes along with that role is because you typically are the one that's blamed, right? At least by your, um, your company, right? Like they typically are going to use you as the scapegoat. And, you know, obviously that's a huge issue. Who wants to be the one that's on the hook if they're just going to get blamed and they're not going to get supported with the proper funding and just overall support that they need to be effective in that position, right? Because typically in a CISO or a chief security officer role, you're inheriting a lot of that technical debt. You're not, you know, you're not there a lot of times from the start. That's just how it is, right? Or you are, and then eventually you move on, and then somebody else comes in and they inherit it, right? So that's an issue. And is it, you know, necess- like let's say it's day one, right, or week one, and you get breached, is that then your your fault? You know, for all of that uh, infrastructure and processes and policies and procedures that were set up, you know, probably not, right? Like that's probably not your your fault. Um, but you know, a lot of times CEOs and other, um, high level executives and and people that are ultimately kind of, um, preventing a lot of the security stuff from getting done or from having the correct budget. uh, A lot of times those are not the people that are on the hook, right? It's just, it's how things end up happening. And then the chief security officer, the chief information security officer, they get let go. And then, you know, all's good because we're going to bring in somebody else that's going to change the world. Um, so it's good to start seeing executives or directors in the company uh, actually named, right? Like as an individual named, like you are on the hook for this. Um, because I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I think as far as those kind of individuals, we'll see kind of how things like insurance, play out as far as that, right? Because if you're coming into an organization, you know, it'd be nice to kind of have an insurance policy where if I get breached because I've been doing all the right things and making sure that we're secure, but all this legacy kind of stuff is causing a bunch of issues. Um, and that's what ended up getting us hacked. You know, that would be interesting to see. But I think we'll kind of, we'll have to start seeing this play out. This is not going to be, you know, an immediate fix. And this is something that is continuing to evolve over time. So we'll we'll see what happens with that. Uh, let's see here. So we had a comment from <clears throat> uh, we had a comment in the chat saying Twitter incident shows why GRC is important. Yeah, I mean ultimately you know, a lot of aspects of security are important. Uh, it's not just GRC. It's not like the security operations center. It's that whole part, right? Like how do all the pieces kind of work together and make you more secure, right? Like there's a lot of pieces that go into securing an organization. If you've never looked at the NIST risk management framework, I would highly recommend that because that's probably going to be the most comprehensive, uh, you know, framework or compliance regime that you can implement within an organization because 
Uh, specifically, there is 853, which has a lot of the actual controls to implement. You know, there's a ton. There are physical security controls. There are policy controls. Uh, there are account management controls. There are awareness training controls. Like, there's a ton of controls that go into that document. And that's all the stuff that you could potentially do in an organization to keep them secure. And you know, when you have one of those components that is uh, starved for resources or, you know, not able to do their job, not able to meet some of those policies and controls in place, you know, that can create issues, right? Like, obviously, each area is of different importance in different times because, you know, policies are really important initially to kind of set that behavior and outline expectations and, you know, and it just, depending on what area it is, right? Like that depends on the, uh, that will, that will impact when it's really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily just a technical issue anymore, right? Like that's kind of been the historical way that we've thought about security because it's like, well, yeah, it's just, it's a technical issue. We could put a technical control in place, but a lot of this technology doesn't stop a lot of this stuff from happening. It's, you know, the culmination of a lot of this stuff. And that's what really makes you secure. So there's a whole bunch of pieces that go into it. But again, if you haven't seen the NIST risk management framework, I would highly recommend you check that out because that's going to give you a very broad idea of what you need to have in an organization. There's also other ones, you know, COVID and, um, you know, all kinds of other regulations that you could have that could be applicable to your organization. But again, I point to the NIST risk management framework because that is you know, really that's kind of the, the big daddy, right? Like that is the major, uh, major one that you could get a very good idea of how everything works together. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's a growing process with security in general, because even, you know, let's say, uh, early two thousands, right. Even, or late nineties. So that's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that long ago, right? Like 20 years ago. Uh, maybe 15 years ago, even right. Like security has not been a major area of concern to the magnitude that it is today because new technologies have came out, new vulnerabilities have been discovered in the existing protocols that have been around for a long time. And, you know, hackers have just become more sophisticated and more interested, we'll say, in getting into companies. And so you know, it, it's crazy to think about how things have evolved over time. If you can go back and look up some like YouTube videos or something about like cybersecurity back in 2005, you know, let me know. That'd be interesting. Um, but you're going to see, you know, a drastic difference just in the way that people are taught about cybersecurity and the things that we are, you know, taught to really focus on and the things that we can do and it's, it's just a whole different world, you know, and that's 15 years, right? Like that's light speed, right? Probably even 10 years ago, but, um, we're going to see that continue to evolve because we're going to see companies get hacked. We're going to see new, uh, new methods. There's going to be new ideas of how to secure things, things like zero trust, right? Zero trust is a new, a uh, new idea that hasn't been around that long. You know, that's something that's completely changed the way people think. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff um, to consider.
Uh, all right, attacker techniques. LinkedIn, smart links, abuse, abused and evasive fe- uh, email phishing attacks. Phishing actors are abusing LinkedIn's smart link feature to bypass email security products and successfully redirect targets to phishing pages that steal payment information. So smart links uh, is a feature in uh, LinkedIn sales navigator uh, and enterprise users, basically allowing them to give a link that kind of packages up documents and it gives a single link instead of giving like 15 links, right? And then LinkedIn obviously has like their um, shortener and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it also gives some analytics that you can use on who, who, uh, who viewed the shared content and for how long. Um, let's see here. So basically what's happening is these phishing actors, they are, they're sending these links, these smart links to victims. It is redirecting them to this, um, this website, right? Saying we're looking for a two, uh, two ninety nine payment of a Euro payment, right? And then once you pay that, you get a confirmation email. But what these threat actors are actually doing is they're trying to capture your credit card information, the, the date, uh, exp- expiration date, the holder's name, the, the uh, code on the card, you know, all that kind of information. But it looks legitimate, right? Especially if you're sending an SMS confirmation for the payment. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting way to send a phishing attack. I know that with social media like LinkedIn and stuff, attackers are definitely starting to really um, take advantage of that. And they're trying to just find ways that, you know, are going to bypass some security controls, kind of abuse, um, abuse, you know, methods, right? Like that's what attackers do. They abuse methods, right? Like they abuse technologies. They're not meant to do that. So pretty uh, interesting way. Uh, MF, MFA fatigue. Hackers' new te- uh, favorite te- tactic in high-profile breaches. So MFA fatigue. Hackers' new favorite tactic in high-profile high breaches. Hackers are more frequently using social engineering attacks to gain access to corporate credentials and breach large networks. One component of these attacks that's becoming more popular with the rise of multi-factor authentication is a technique called MFA fatigue. Multi-factor fatigue. So basically companies are implementing multi-factor authentication. So send me a code, send me a text message, uh, you know, whatever, right? Like that's, that's the idea. Um, so an MFA fatigue attack, if you're not familiar with it, this is when an attacker runs some kind of script and they attempt to log in with stolen credentials over and over and over again. So basically the victim, they are getting a whole bunch of these requests. So like. Uh, think about on your phone, like an iPhone or something like that, right? Where you get a pop-up and it says somebody's trying to log into your account or you're trying to log in your account from this location, right? Like that is the alert that this is targeting. So it's just going to blast some victim with a ton of these alerts basically until the victim says allow, right? Like that is the idea. They're just going to overwhelm the victim until they just give in. And let's see here. Uh, it says in many cases, the threat actors will push out repeated MFA notifications and then contact the target through email messaging platforms or over the phone, pretending to be IT support and convince the user to accept the MFA prompt. So they're not only just blasting the victim with these messages, they're also going to try to contact you another way to legitimize that, uh, that prompt, 
right? Like, I mean, that's pretty, pretty uh, interesting attack, right? Uh, ultimately, the target gets so, so overwhelmed that they accidentally click on the approve button or simply accept the MFA request to stop the deluge of notifications that they were receiving on their phone. So yeah, so that's definitely a way, you know, that attackers are exploiting, right? It's human nature. Like if I'm getting so annoyed by all these notifications, maybe I accidentally am sleeping, right? And I, I hit approve, right? Or hit allow. Um, you know, that's certainly a way to, you know, <laughs> I guess infiltrate by annoyance, right? Like that, that, that seems like, seems like the strategy. Um, but that's a cool new, uh, technique that especially if you're, you know, if you're a seasoned vet or if you're new, right? Like if you're a new person and you talk about this kind of attack to somebody, um, you know, that's going to show that you're following what's going on in the world because that's not something that existed, you know, again, 20 years ago, right? So that's a pretty, pretty cool recent attack. Uh, let's see here. All right, so that's going to be the last article for this week. Uh, again, I'm John Good. I'm your host. This is going to be your threat intel briefing for September 18th, 2022 through September 24th, 2022. If you watched on YouTube and you joined me on there, I appreciate it. Make sure to leave a like, comment, and subscribe. Or if you're watching on the replay, like, comment, and subscribe as well. Let me know if you like this kind of content, if you want to see other kind of content. And not just for uh, threat intel briefings or anything like that, you know, as the channel as a whole, uh, if you want to see certain kinds of tools or, you know, whatever, right? Like other kind of content, uh, let me know if you're listening on podcasting platform, because we are also available on all the podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, uh, whatever else you could think of. There's a whole bunch of them that this pushes out too. Uh, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review as well. Again, let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you enjoy the show, if you want to see some other stuff. Uh, I always look at all those kind of comments and, um, you know, try to internalize that and make everything better, right? Because it's all about making the show better and better and better and better. So make sure to let me know on that as well. Check out the description. I do have a link to the show notes so you can see the articles if you want to go back and look at them a little bit more. Maybe there's some articles that we covered that you want to see that we you know didn't talk about, right? Um, check out that link. Uh, that's going to be on my website, jonga.com. And with that, that is going to call it for the day. I want to thank you for joining me and I will see you next time.